What's up, Hyperfast Nation? Sometimes big events happen to us in our life, things that scare us, things that can be quite unsettling. It's in those moments and how you react to them that really sets the destiny, the course of your life. On this show, we have a guest who went through some events that turned his life upside down, job, health, personal, all of that. He now has used real estate to build an amazing life. He's got over 300 rental units. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey Holst. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. How are you doing? I am doing super well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining. I know you've got a great story to share with our hyper-fast listeners here. And, you know, it's going to be more than just real estate. I know everyone probably saw the bio or the show notes and, you know, all, all the great real estate deals. But we're going to talk a little bit also about the mindset and the role that played in getting you to that point, because it's something I think everyone should focus on first. So before we do that, give people your story, your background, so they know who you are. Okay, sure. So um, yeah, I'm a real estate investor. I don't actually like the um, idea of defining myself like that, though. So um, well, that is what I do. That's how I make the majority of my money. I like to think of myself as just a, you know a person who's trying to go through life in a in a way that that benefits the world. Uh, so I spend a lot of time thinking about just like how, how I can give back, how I can help people. Um, and it turns out if you do that kind of stuff, it's sort of like uh, you just get more opportunities. So um, so I think a lot about it's that. Just, it's just the, the tool or the vehicle, I guess, in other yeah, words. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, um, I'm a, a lawyer by trade. So I was a bankruptcy attorney uh, back in 2008. I was filing a ton of bankruptcies. I mean, I think we filed like 450 in one in between January and August of that year. I mean, you got to remember the economy was going crazy at that time. I mean, everything was falling apart. Um, we're in a different sort of economy now, and I can't predict the future. But um, but then it, it felt like the world was falling apart, and everyone uh, everyone was uh, was rushing to my office for that. Uh, and I was, you know, I mean, I was taking advantage of it. I mean, that's what I did, right? So, but then uh, in 2008, I went to uh, Peru in the summer. Uh, so like August of 2008, I went to Peru. I went to Machu Picchu. Um, and I climbed up to the top of the mountain and I was looking down at that, that lost Incan city. And I was thinking to myself, you know, um, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. <laughs> right. Like I literally was like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm practicing law. I'm making money. Like, you know, I'm young. Everything seems to be going pretty well. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I just don't know what I want to do. And, you know, it was kind of like a bucket list moment. I, I'd made this sort of short list of places I wanted to go. And that was the last one. And I got done with it. And I went, huh, huh what should I do now? And uh, uh, anyway, long story short, I came off of the mountain. I, I went to a payphone because it's 2008. We didn't have international <laughs> cell phones then. And uh, I checked my voicemail and I had gotten a, a voicemail from this attorney that worked for me at the time saying that 
he it said something like the effect of like, oh, I'm sorry to tell you this over the phone, but because you're traveling, uh, I just thought I'd let you know I'm putting in my two week notice. And that was like a week ago when, when, cause I hadn't checked my voicemail in a week. So like I had this two week notice that was already a week. Stale. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I only had one attorney that worked for me. So it was like myself and one other guy. Right. Um, and, uh, and I was like, well, I guess I'll have to deal with that when I get home. And so by the time I got home, he had two days left in his two week notice and uh, that, that was on a uh, Wednesday and he was going to be done on Friday. That Thursday, I went to the med center because I was coughing and I just I felt like complete hell, actually. And um, they uh, they gave me some antibiotics and I, I didn't really do much. And on Saturday, I was even worse. So now I don't have any attorney besides myself working. And then Saturday, I went back to the med center. They did some blood work. They thought I picked up a parasite in the Amazon, actually, because I'd been like out in the Amazon, like hiking and, and swimming in the river and stuff like that. And which, you know, by the way, don't do that. Don't swim in the Amazon River. It's a bad idea. Mm. But it seemed like a good idea at the time because <laughs> it was super hot, right? Like, for, first of all, we went piranha fishing. Like, we literally went piranha fishing. And then, like, 15 minutes later, I jumped into the water. So oh, wow. That tells you how you're crazy like, I am, right? Like, ch chumming the water up for them, yeah. and then... Yeah, and then just... I mean, that's that's like going shark fishing and then jumping in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, well, I've done that, too. Um, well, actually, it wasn't fishing for sharks, but... Um, quick side note on the shark thing i was diving um in a night dive in the great barrier reef in 2013 and um and and you know you have a flashlight it's dark right and there's like a lights on the boat so i'm like looking up at the the boat and i can see like the light from the boat and i'm like trying to find like where the ladder is i'm like maybe 20 feet underwater right and i'm going like this with the flashlight and i just see like a tail fin go by right and i'm like shit and i go like this and I see another one and I go like this. And I mean, there's like these like 10 foot sharks just circling the boat. And I'm looking at my depth gauge and going, okay, I got about 10 more minutes until I'm out of air. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I really want to go up there, but what do you got to do? Right. You just do what you got to do. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I went to Amazon and I, I got a call long story short. I got a call from a doctor um, at like 10 o'clock that Saturday night. And, and he said this, he said, um, there's no easy way to tell you this over the phone, but you have leukemia and you have to come to the hospital right now. Mm. Like literally like that. And I was like, okay, because <laughs> what else do you say? And I'm, my wife was watching and she looked at me and she goes, well, what did the doctor want? I go, uh, let's just finish watching the TV show we're watching, you know? And uh, it was like, um, you remember that show heroes, like the, that show. So we were watching that. There was like five minutes left in heroes. And, um, and she was like, no, you need to tell me. So then I told her and uh, she freaked out mm. like you do when you get news like that. I was trying to keep it really calm. Right. Then I called her dad and, and he's like, what's going on? I'm like, just come over. It's like 10 o'clock at night. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It was um, it was a thing. And I ended up uh, not dying. So it could have been worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the end of this. I mean, I, don't, I wish there was like some magic. So but the, the point is, I like. I go to the hospital. I find out I'm very sick. Actually, my white blood cell count was stupid high. Um, and for about two weeks, we thought I had like weeks to live. Right. So, you know, you go through this period of time where you're like, hmm, what do I want to do with my last few weeks? Right. And that's uh, that's sort of a life changing thing to go through. Uh, fortunately, uh, they had a new treatment protocol out for the type of leukemia I have. And uh, and it's worked so far. So, you know, we're 12, 
13, geez, it's almost 13 years later now. And um, yeah, just still kicking. But uh, the bad part was I couldn't work for six months. And remember I had that other attorney quit right before that. So that actually uh, drove me into bankruptcy myself. So I was a bankruptcy attorney and then I had to go in front of a bankruptcy judge and tell him, hey, sorry, I'm bankrupt myself. Um, that was 2011 or 2010 really. And I just kind of went, I got to do something different. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do anyway. You know, I was in this situation where I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I took a job. I moved to uh, Tennessee from Michigan and, um, I was making like $700 a week or something like that, or $600 a week. It was something very small, right? Didn't have any money, no credit. And then I did what you do when you have no money and no credit. I started buying real estate. So that's, that's the short version of how I got to where I am now. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> a couple of things a to unpack. Yeah. 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 Well, why, why, why do you think, uh, I mean, I mean, real estate, obviously you went through this period where your work got up ended, your personal health got up ended your life, uh, you know, wrench was thrown at it to say the least. Uh, what, what makes real estate, the attraction and how do you even know that that would be yeah oh um, yeah great question so um i was always interested in real estate my parents had a few rentals when i was a kid so i kind of you know had some early exposure to it i used to be the you know when i was like 13 14 i would sneak out of bed at night and watch late night infomercials and you know i'd watch like carlton sheets no money down stuff uh, and so I always thought, you know, it just sounded like a cool way to make money, like, you know, go buy and hold rental properties. I mean, I don't think I phrased it that way when I was 13, but it just always seemed like a good idea. And I always kept saying to myself, you know, once I get my law firm stable, once I do this, then I'll start investing in real estate. Um, and when I got sick, I went, man, I, uh, I need to have income in case I die. Like I need money for my wife. It wasn't, wouldn't be for me, obviously, if I died, but if I couldn't work again, I didn't want to not have income. So uh, the only thing I really knew anything about was real estate. I'd read tons of real estate books and I just kind of went, okay, I got to do that. And I'd flipped one house when I was in law school. So I wasn't completely, uh, you know, never having real estate, but I, I hadn't really put any serious effort into it until then. And the prices were really good in 2010, as you remember, I'm sure. Uh, so we started out, um, myself and one of my friends from law school, we just bought a condo for cash because I didn't have any credit. It was like a $30,000 condo that a few years wow. earlier was worth a hundred thousand, right? You know, where, was where was that? What market? Uh, it was uh, Birmingham, Michigan. So it's kind of a nice suburb of Detroit, like on the, on the North side of Detroit. So um, it's, we still own the condo. Actually, we bought two in the same building. We've had them since 2011. Uh, and they're probably, you know, $150,000 condos now. Um, so it worked out pretty well for us. Um, they rent for, you know, at the time they were renting for like $600 a month. And, uh, you know, we were buying them for 30. So it made sense. Uh, but then I was out of money because I didn't have any money or credit. And so we just had to get really creative. We started doing hard money stuff and um, some flipping to generate money. We did a little turnkey stuff. We were basically whatever it took. We'd, we'd sell a couple of places, use the profits from that to buy something to hold for our portfolio. And we did that for from 2011 to 2017. We did mostly single families or like duplexes and stuff. And by 2017, we had uh, like 50 some units free and clear, no debt on any of it because I didn't have credit. Um, and then uh, my 
job that I had taken six years earlier was getting sold to a bigger company, the company that I worked for. And they offered me a job or a buyout. And I was like, no, I don't want to work for a big company. <laughs> I'm out. And I took six months severance and thought, I'm just figured out from here. And I've never gone back to work since. So. So you still, your main work now, you focus on real estate, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. So, I mean, we started selling the single families and buying 1031ing into apartments. Uh, in 17, I bought a, a 12 unit and a 19 unit. Those were the first two deals we did. And then, then the next year we did a 32 unit and a 41 unit. And it's just been kind of off the, off to the races from there. What do you think the biggest challenge is going from single family to multifamily? Uh, is it, is it harder, easier, the same? Uh, yeah. So it's, um, it's similar, right? I mean, the numbers work similar, but you have some advantages in that you get some scale advantages, things like that. Um, you get, uh, it's really easy to test the market. If you've got a 40 unit building and they're all roughly the same unit, you can try one of the units at a thousand dollars. And if it rents really fast, you can try the next one at a thousand fifty, right? Or if it doesn't rent, you can lower it, but you can sort of test the market. So you can sort of, it feels, it feels easier to set rents and things like that because of them. Um, the financing is a little bit more challenging. If you don't have, uh, you know, 20% down and you don't have um, a track record, it can be very difficult to, uh, to finance. But when we bought the 12 unit, we already had 50 units in the market. So it was like, well, okay, the, the, the banks believed us, right? Like we knew what we were doing. We had some, some property there and the same with the 19. Then once we had those, buying a 30 unit wasn't that crazy of a leap, right? So you just kind of have to stepping stone it a little bit. Do you have a, a management company or hire one or, or do you, how involved do you get with that and with testing prices and, and you know, making sure you're optimizing the, the revenue? Yeah. So uh, look, if you have a good management company, it's, I mean, it's really important to have either run your own management company or have one that's really, really good for yourself. Uh, you know, that's really going to stay on top of it because no one's going to care about the stuff as much as you do. So for me, I partner with, in my stuff in Michigan is partnered with a guy um, who's, you know, a friend of mine from law school, like I said, and he owns a property management company. So we utilize his up there. And then, um, and same thing in Tennessee, actually, I started buying in Tennessee uh, three, four years ago. And um, same deal, I partnered with someone who owned a property management company here. Uh, and he's a good friend of mine also. So that's, for me, partnerships, really, really important, have good partners. And if they have a management company, that's even better. Hey, hold that thought for a minute. Do you have a client that needs to buy or sell a home in the DMV area? Then why not trust the highest selling team in the DMV? the Carrie Scholl team. We've helped thousands of buyers and sellers and would love to help your clients. And we guarantee we will save them time, money, and stress throughout the process. And they will be so grateful that you referred them to us. Go to carriescholl.com to learn more. Again, that's carriescholl.com to learn more about sending us your clients that need to buy or sell a home in the DMV area. That's carryshaw.com. What, uh, what do you think the, the key is to, to making sure you're maximizing the rent? Because every, you know, everything's driven by the rent, uh, cap sure. rates, values, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And that's the great part about multifamily is that you know, the more NOI you have, the, the better the value is. Uh, yeah. So the key with rents is um, when you're deciding on, for me, I always look at if I'm going to make an improvement, if I think what, what's the, what's the extra income I'm going to get from that improvement. Now, obviously this is not like, you know, 
repairs are repairs. You have to fix things. Like you can't leave your property in disarray or you're going to have other problems. But when I'm thinking about like, do I want to add laundry hookups or do I want to add a, a back porch or something, right? Or do I want to, you know, I want to change out the toilets to high efficiency toilets. It doesn't matter what the issue is. I'm looking at what the impact is on NOI. Um, and, you know, it turns out from my perspective, you know, fresh, clean looking properties with, you know, nice vinyl flooring, um, you know, or new carpets in the bedrooms, those kind of things tend to get you a better rent. You get a better quality tenant. They're going to stay longer. They're going to be happier with the property. So for me, I'm trying to target um, making my property a little bit more attractive than anything else on the market in that area. Um, and if you do that, you can almost set your own rents. And of course, some of this has been um, really easy the last couple of years. So you have to be aware of that too. Like rents have been going up in every market that I've been involved in. I mean, I'm in four states now and and rents have just gone up like way faster than we modeled, uh, which is good, obviously, but it's also something that's completely out of our control. We don't know when rents will stop going up, for example. So what uh, what's the, the biggest one you've taken on, not necessarily in terms of units or price, but just in terms of, you know, it started at this value and you improved the units or management. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, no worries. <clears throat> and got it up to, you know, a higher value. Uh, yeah, so that is that is our strategy, right? Like we do value add investing and we really do focus on 20 to 50 unit buildings right now. So we did a 41 unit about two years ago that we bought for um, just about two, $2 million dollars. And we, it was a little bit less, like one nine or something like that. And we, um, we were able to raise the rents from an average of about 550. I mean, it was basically a one-to-one -one debt coverage ratio when we bought it. Um, but we were able to raise the rents from about 550 to just over 850 on average um, in the first 12 months of ownership. Uh, did some capital improvements, things like that. And then actually was able to refinance it at 18 months uh, and pull out more than our initial down payment and all of the money we put in. So we were, you know, 100% of our money back and then still left a ton of equity. That The bank actually capped because we hadn't owned it two years. They capped our loan at $2 million, um, but the appraisal came back at just under three. So we could have arguably pulled out another few hundred thousand. So, I mean, basically a million dollars profit um, and all of our money back in 18 months. Wow. And then, you know, because that came from a refi, right? Just so yeah, it's tax-free. Yeah. Yeah, no, no tax ob obligations on that. Um, and that thing's still, I mean, honestly, that thing's still cash flows like crazy. The debt coverage ratio after the refi was 1.8. So that means 80% more net operating income than, than the cost of the payment. So still cash flowing, you know, six, $7,000 every single month. What are, what are banks, just so people know, like what are banks typically looking for when they lend? Yeah, it depends a little bit on the circumstance. So when you first start out, you might get away with a lower debt coverage ratio, but you have to have the track record and prove where you're going to end up at. You know, maybe the rents are on the low side or whatever, um, but they want a stabilized debt coverage ratio typically of about 1.25 so 25% more than the payment. So they want to know that you're going to have enough money coming in to pay the payment and still have some money left over. That's really what they're looking at. What, uh, what kind of time do you put into this now, like compared to when you were an attorney, just for example? <laughs> uh, well, it's less work than being an attorney. That's the, that's the starting point. Most of what I do now is actually stuff like this, right? So I have a couple of shows myself. And so I go do my shows and 
Um, it's all about networking. So I go to a lot of, uh, well, about 2020, I'm not as many, right? Because of COVID, but, but I try to go to a lot of in-person networking things. I like to meet a lot of people face-to-face, a lot of coffees, a lot of drinks, um, a lot of lunches, uh, that sort of thing. So most of my time is actually spent on, on networking either with people that have property or with people that want to invest in property because we do a little bit of syndicating now too. So we're trying to build up our investor base and things like that. So um, what else was it? Oh, what, what states are you, are you currently buying in? Uh, yeah, so we still buy in Michigan and Tennessee, which is, you know, where, where I'm, I live in Tennessee and I'm from Michigan. So those are very comfortable. Uh, we do do some stuff in North Georgia now, like basically a uh, half hour, 45 minutes north of Atlanta and up. But that's really close to where I live in Chattanooga. So that's why we pick that market. And then we're looking at Alabama, also close to Chattanooga. I have some property in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. So we, we have a little bit there. I'm actually open to buying in other markets. I look at stuff in other markets, but I'm a firm believer in um, only buying what you know. And, you know, if you don't have the resources on the ground, it can be very difficult to know if it's a good deal or not. So we're very careful about opening up new markets as a result of that. Yeah, I was going to say, what what do you think the biggest challenges are being in, in multiple markets like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the stuff here, Chattanooga and North Georgia, we all, we manage from here. So it's, it's essentially the same market. And then the Michigan market we had developed because of our relationship to the state. You know, I was from Michigan, my partners in Michigan. So I really haven't had too much challenges with that. Um, The biggest challenge is though, really just going to be building your team. I mean, if you have a good team on the ground, you can manage from anywhere. I mean, I I think um, if I lived you know, in the Caribbean somewhere, I could do what I do, right? Like, I don't need to visit the properties that often. Um, but uh, I, I do need to, you know, I do need to have a good team on the ground to manage them. Yeah, so good management. And, you know, once you, well, yeah, like you said, once you dial that down, the beauty of real estate, you can do it from anywhere in the world. Yeah, and I mean, that was the whole thing for me, right? So like, when I got sick, I was like, what can I do that's going to pay me no matter what, right? So I've always start from the very beginning, the first deal I did was always like, I don't mind being involved. I've even managed some of my own properties for a while, but I've always thought about it like, okay, what if I can't do it? What happens, right? So I've always built the model in a way that I could walk away at any time. So like in 2020, I took a month off uh, and I went to Africa for the month of February and uh, it was fine. It was no big deal. Like I went for the entire month. I mean, I'm glad I went in February and not like say April cause I would have been stuck at home instead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, I went and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and didn't have my cell phone access for, you know, seven or eight days. And it, it wasn't a big deal. And I didn't have to worry about it because I built a business around the idea that I don't have to be involved if I don't want. Um, I don't find as many deals when I'm not involved, right? That's the thing. Like, I don't meet new people if I'm not doing something. So I do have to be involved if I want to grow. But if I want to walk away for a month, two months, three months, it probably wouldn't really substantially impact the operations, which is, it's a good way to be. It buys you a lot of freedom. And at the end of the day, to me, the secret to life is buying back your time as fast as possible so that you're not stuck doing things you don't want to do. Yeah, I've, I've heard that refrain from a lot of successful people in real estate you know, building out portfolios and that like, you know, once, once you get it to a certain level, it can kind of sustain and maybe grow a little bit, but yeah, 
it, it needs, if you really want to push on the same growth you have been before, you got to push. Um, yeah. Well, and you don't always need growth though. I mean, you can grow in spurts, right? So um, to me, the thing about it is that you have to think about real estate like, like any other business, it's not going to live on its own. Right. I mean, it's, there's going to, you're going to be involved, but if you love it, it's fine. So one of the other secrets to life besides buying back your time is being a person who can't really distinguish between work and play. Like I love real estate. So going and looking at an apartment complex later today would be fun to me. Like if if somebody called me up and they're like, Hey, I got this apartment complex. Want to go look at it? I'd be like, sure. Is it available? No. Oh, let's go look at it anyway and just see what it's like. Right. Cause that's what I like to do. Um, and that helps. Um, and I mean, you have to be a little neurotic to do that. Right. But, um, if you love what you're doing, then, you know, there's the saying, right? Like if, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And on a way, in a way that's, that's BS. Cause there's always going to be something about your business that bugs you no matter what, right. It's whether it's filing taxes or, uh, you know, or figuring out how to pay people or whatever it might be. There's, there's going to be some element of what you're doing that's going to be outside of what you love to do. And you can hire people to do that stuff, but sometimes they're going to quit um, or sometimes you're they're going to do it differently than what you want them to. And you're going to have to be involved. So that's just the way we're, the world works. But if you can kind of minimize those points of contact, then you can grow your business from anywhere. You can do the work when you want to do it. Um, you know, if I want to talk to you right now, great. If I didn't, then uh, we wouldn't be on the call right now, right? Like, I just wouldn't, yeah. I would just, I would have been like, no, that time doesn't work. I'll do it a different time. And if it didn't work for you, then we just wouldn't do it because it wouldn't, it isn't going to make that much difference in the scheme of my life, right? I mean, I, obviously, meeting you is the most important thing that's ever happened to me, but I agree. Um, yeah. Besides, <laughs> besides that, you know. Hey, hold that thought. Do you want to get 100 tips? for free from my best selling real estate book, The Hyper Local Hyper Fast Real Estate Agent. If you do, go to hyperfasttips.com and you can download 100 of my best tips today. Again, that's hyperfasttips.com. You can download 100 tips on how to grow your business, get more clients, deliver more value to more people. Go to hyperfasttips.com. Well, what um what do you what do you think of what the market's done in the last year? I know in the multifamily space, uh, more people are doing it. You're starting to see cap rate compression. Uh, you know, what's your overall thoughts on this direction, and and what cap rates are you looking at for deals right now? Oh uh, yeah, so yeah, cap rates compression. Um, we're not starting to see it. It's here. It's happened, right? I mean, it's been happening for a couple of years now. Um, the the different markets have different cap rates still, but what's happened is because interest rates have come down so much, in particular since the um, coronavirus uh, pandemic started, rates have dropped tremendously, which means that people are chasing yield and so um, trying to find investments that they can make that produce a certain return that's better than what they're going to get in the bank. I mean, I used to have a high interest, literally like a year ago, I had a high interest rate you know, online money market that paid 2%, that same account pays a quarter percent now, right? So if you have, you know, big money in an account like that, you start going, hmm, maybe I should invest it at 4% in real estate. And that's what we're seeing, like, like some of this money's coming to the table and saying, hey, I want to put it in at low cap rates. Um, in Chattanooga, 
Um, cap rates have fallen from, you know, five, six years ago, you know, like high single digits, maybe even a 10 cap in some places to, uh, you know, six caps, uh, five and a half caps, maybe some six and a half. Um, if you can buy something at a seven, you're really happy. Um, but, you know, in other markets, it's different. Like, you know, Southern California, I mean, I think things are down to like two and a half caps or two caps in some markets now in some asset classes. So you see a, a huge, huge variance. Um, and those cap rates are really just, they're just a market indicator. That's what people want to make on the property, on the money that they have, right? So uh, it's gotten challenging to make that work um, for my modeling, but we still are finding deals. We're just, uh, there's more of a temptation to sell than there ever has been. Because if you can buy something and improve it and increase the NOI and the cap rate's really low, then the value goes up proportionally faster, right? Like a, a 10 cap and you increase the NOI by a hundred thousand and it raises it a million dollars, but a five cap, you increase the NOI by a hundred dollars, it raises it $2 million. So um, you get a lot more bang for your buck on the value add side and the low cap rate environment, um, which, you know, makes it tempting to, to try to refinance or sell faster and capture that equity in some fashion and, and redeploy it. But then you look at what you're going to redeploy it and you've got to find something that needs to have value added or else you're not going to get a very good return on your money. So it's a tricky market for sure. If you had to sell your multifamilies today, uh, what would you invest in? Uh, Bitcoin. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, Bitcoin's gone crazy too, right? Like, I don't know when this will come out. It could be like $5 or 5 million by the time the show comes out, even if it's tomorrow. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, um, I, uh, I've been talking to various people and I have friends like, like Harry Dent, who's an economic forecaster. Most people have heard of him. He thinks the whole market's going to collapse and everything's going to get really cheap. Um, so, you know, there's an argument for just selling to cash and waiting the market out. Um, but I've never been a fan of that kind of strategy because I think, you know, you're, it's easier to, it's easier to cash flow than it is to time the market, right? So if I had to sell right now, I'd try to find things that produce cash flow. If I couldn't buy real estate, um, it'd be hard to decide. I mean, I'm heavy in real estate. It's probably 80% of my assets are real estate assets. I like, um, I like some, some collectible stuff too, actually, right now, even though it doesn't cash flow. Um, because of all the stimulus that's gone into the market, right? Like there's so much stimulus, you start to think about inflation. So things like, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to loan money out because debt seems like that would be bad, but things like art, um, especially high-end art, like if you can go buy Picassos or something like that might be a strategy that would work. Those things tend to go up pretty well in an inflationary environment, uh, but they also get really hit in downturns. Um, you know, they're, they swing wildly, but over the long term, they trend up. So if you can buy classic art, that might be a good strategy. Uh, I don't know. It'd be hard not to invest in real estate, though. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's where uh, that's where I'm primarily am. Well, this has been uh, an amazing time. Your story is very inspirational. I always like to wrap up with a hyper fast round if you're ready for some. All right, let's questions. do it. What's your biggest, what's your biggest piece of advice to a new real estate investor? Uh, start now. Uh, even though the market is high, it's like, I always say buy whenever you buy, just wait and sell until it's high. So 
What about what about an experienced real estate investor? What would your advice to them be? Just keep buying. I mean, honestly, like don't get too comfortable. Um, it's really easy to get good at one thing and not not look at other options. Um, be ready to pivot, but but just keep keep focus and keep moving forward. What's the biggest challenge you've had in business and how did you overcome it or what did you learn from it? Well, I mean, it's the bankruptcy thing, like getting sick and going bankrupt. Uh, and what I learned is you can't bank on your own health. You've got to uh, create a system that's going to pay you no matter what. If you could start over and all you could bring with you is what you've learned, you couldn't take your, your connections or your money what would you do? Well, if I could be young again, it would be awesome. Um, <laughs> like if I could be young and have the knowledge I have now, I would be really rich. Uh, no, I would just do what I did this time. I mean, I, I literally would just go find some deals because I think if you can find a deal and knowledge is how you find deals. Um, once you find deals, you can find money. And when you find money and deals and you put them together, you get a piece of it. So I would just be a connector. All right. When you're not doing real estate deals, what would we find you doing most likely? Uh, well, I love traveling. Um, this year has been hard for that, but I'm um, going to Puerto Rico for a month. Uh, in I'm leaving May 17 for a month. I was in Puerto Rico a few weeks ago, and I just was like, I should stay here more. So that's. <laughs> but you'll probably find me on the beach in Puerto Rico or scuba diving or something like that. All right. Last question here. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Um, that's a great question. Look, I, I don't think of stuff like that very often. What I actually think about is my one primary life goal is to live an extraordinary life in a way that when I'm old and hopefully I get old, right? Like, I mean, I'd rather stay young forever, but I don't think that's an option. Unfortunately, when I get old and I go to a bar, some young kid sits down next to me and I start talking to him and I have at least enough interesting stories that he wants to keep listening. So Hopefully, you know, that's a deflection to your 10 years question because I'm hopefully not be old for, you know, more than 10 years, but I want to be in a bar telling some young kid about, you know, how cool my life was. Awesome. No, I love that. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we sign off here, I know you've got your own podcast. Uh, what, what? You know, sure. how do, what's tell us a little bit about that and yeah. then other other ways people can connect. Yeah. So so I have two shows, actually. I have the old fashioned real estate show. Um, and what we do there is it's mostly on YouTube. I mean, we're on all the podcasting apps, too. But myself and my partner, Brian Leverage, that's actually his last name, Leverage. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So Brian and I, we get drunk and talk about real estate. So we drink bourbon old fashions and talk about real estate. So we literally just pour a glass of bourbon and then, and then we sit down and pick a topic. And when we're done with the bourbon, we're done with the show. And so that's that, I mean, that's the most fun way to keep up with my real estate's thoughts and journeys. Um, but the thing I'm most passionate about right now is this thing I call the last life ever philosophy. And my other show is called last life ever. And it's literally just about living the best possible version of your life, whatever that means to you. For me, there's a real estate element to that. There's a travel element, there's a charity element, but for everyone it's different, right? So it's like, figure out what you want to do with your life and then go do that. Um, and so we started that show and we started a private Facebook group. So that's probably the best place to find me is just join the last life ever private group on Facebook. And then you'll see me cause I'm in there all the time. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Your uh, your story is very inspirational. Great example of you know what you can do through real estate. I, I think, like we said up front, real estate's the the vehicle or the tool to living an amazing life. You've shown people how to do that. So hopefully they'll connect with you on your show. To all the listeners and viewers out there, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you give us some feedback, leave some comments, uh, share this with other people that you could benefit and hit the subscribe button on YouTube. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hyper Fat Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyper Fat Shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests and improve our shows. So give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time.